1: Today on the show, we have author Trey Williams. Welcome, Trey. Hey
0: there. It's great to be here. It's really my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, tell us about um, your writing.
0: Uh, So the book came out last week. It is called Boss Brain, and it is about unlocking your entrepreneurial instincts. Um, The book is one that I formulated after years within the franchise industry myself, where I saw this inherent battle in, in aspiring entrepreneurs' minds. Uh, And it really is the battle between optimism and uncertainty. Um, It's one that I think most of us lead uh, every day and we still battle. We've been battling it for millennia. And in these days in the Western world where we have a tremendous amount of certainty, uh, the book really reveals how so many of us have succumbed to that. And it's really smothered our entrepreneurial instincts.
1: So now talk about your uh, journey in franchising.
0: Oh, I, I stumbled into franchising way back in the UFOC era. Uh, I'll date myself with that statement. Most of the folks in the industry will remember pre, you know, previous FDD, universe Franchise, Offering, Circular. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing in 2000 when I first tried to franchise a concept. But I, I learned some some lessons through the School of Hard Knocks and was able to successfully franchise a concept uh, was welcomed into the franchise community as the franchise community always does. It's an incredibly supportive and and nurturing community. Um, spent some time at, at Petrus Brands over a couple of different brands in Atlanta after they had uh, after we had acquired some some brands from Raving Brands and really helped them bring those uh, into the national spotlight. Before uh, one of them was sold off to Tasty Delight and Jim Amos and uh, the folks over there incorporated it in as a co-brand with them and at that point went out on my own to help emerging franchisors.
1: So now um, have you seen the a different type of uh, franchisee uh, post-pandemic or during the pandemic and post-pandemic rather than prior to it when you were you, you know, know what, getting I'm, started? what I'm
0: loving right now is that what I'm seeing are the aspiring entrepreneurs who have had this smoldering inner calling uh, the word entrepreneur coincidentally means inner calling, um, and and they've had this inner calling for some time. And I think the the, the pandemic really revealed the the so-called stability of twenty six paychecks a year and fourteen days of vacation to be a bit of a house of cards. And it really released these these instincts and, and caused folks to follow this this inner yearning, this inner calling that they've had for a long time. So you know what I'm hearing is a lot of folks saying, you know, I've been wanting to do this for decades. And the pandemic really made me realize that there was uh, never going to be a perfect time. And, and also the pan- pandemic sort of, it, it changed the market in a way that made this a really unique opportunity in history to seize market share in a variety of ways.
1: Now, do you find that young people are drawn to um, kind of the phrase or term entrepreneur? Um, I, I find them to be very, they I like the concept of being in control of their own destiny, and they kind of have a negative feeling about business, though. So do you see any of that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know, that's a bit of an enigma, right? So what's important to remember is 70% of the American workforce has indicated that they want to be self-employed. That's 100 million people. So there's 100 million people out there who really feel this desire to be an entrepreneur and, and aren't converting that feeling into action. Um, The book goes into great detail about why this is happening and gives you a framework for, for how to get out of it yourself. But what I'm seeing in this younger generation is one of the things that I talked about specifically in the book, which is our inherent optimism ebbs and flows throughout our life. And the time in our life when we're making these decisions about entrepreneurship and careers, let's say after college, mid and early 20s, is the time in our lives when coincidentally, we are least optimistic. And and this goes against conventional thinking. Most media would portray uh, the youth as, as uh, unappreciative of the hard work that the world requires and they're, they're naive and they're, they're too optimistic, but it's actually the opposite of that. We're most optimistic when we're 55 years old and we're least optimistic when we're in our 20s. So the, these young folks who do feel that inner calling are really becoming subject to that, that hardwired negativity that is inherent at that age.
1: Now, is that, uh, is that a recent development, or ha- historically have the young people been more optimistic than they are today?
0: I, I think it's just a, a, a sort of a misperception when we're looking at youth, and we uh, we think of those in their 20s as as being uh, overly optimistic, and the media has, has always portrayed it that way. But if you read Tali Sherat's book, Optimism, Bias, You'll see that in that time frame is actually when we're least optimistic. And it's such a it's a t- such a tough thing because it's at that very moment when we are making those crucial decisions. And what ends up happening is we choose predictable adequacy. We choose 26 paychecks a year. We choose a, a job over our calling.
1: Now, um, do you find that folks who. I don't know. I'm just the world that I'm seeing doesn't align exactly that way. I'm seeing a lot of folks, especially young folks who aspire to maybe a life of things that they, I don't even want to call it entrepreneurship, but on like a series of projects or gigs or activities that pay them enough to live the lifestyle they want. They want the flexibility and they don't uh, want necessarily a, um, a job that that that's not kind of mission oriented or rewarding I, i'm sure, just that's sure. what,
0: no I, I i see what you're saying that certainly the gig economy is something that, that those who are 21 years old were born into um everyone knows that the traditional work day of you know, eight to five o'clock and et cetera, et cetera, is a relic of the industrial revolution at a time when when america needed workers and we need them to be safe and healthy and not burned out and We started measuring and maintaining the amount of time people spent on their job. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, I I, I can see that had that um, gig economy been in place when I was born, I would have felt the exact same way about traditional work environments and corporate structure in the workday. No doubt about it. But that's simply the world that they were born into, albeit in antiquated.
1: But that kind of world Is it whether they call it that or not to me that is being an entrepreneur because you it is an eat what you kill lifestyle? I
0: I couldn't agree more, yeah. I agree with you completely. Um, but despite all the hype of the gig economy, 93% of Americans still work for the other 7%, and the percentage of people in America that are self employed is at an all time low.
1: So the people that are in the gig economy, you're finding they have a job somewhere that's providing maybe some of the stability and structure and maybe benefits that they, they yeah. desire. A
0: lot of side hustle, right? A, a, a lot of side hustle, a lot of multiple jobs at the same time. Um, and the, certainly the pandemic created opportunities for underemployment where people needed to have that supplementary income. Um, and then maybe they found that that to be a lifestyle that was attractive to them. But the, uh, the, what's not happening is there isn't enough uh, of the younger generation converting their, their entrepreneurial desire into action to reverse this downward trend of entrepreneurship in America. It's been falling since the mid-1940s.
1: So um, is it falling just because that's the evolution of entrepreneurship and maybe this is too hard of a a path and it's it's going to kind of just go away at some point. Um, well, or...
0: it's too part of a path. Relatively speaking, what's happening is we're becoming victims of our own success. Uh, in in America, your safety is is uh, is always um, much higher than in other places in the world. We have uh, a grocery store right around the corner. The media, excuse me the the poverty level in the United States about twelve thousand dollars a year is twenty percent more than the median income on the planet, which means the poorest people in America make 20% more than half the globe. So in America, we get a lot of certainty. Um, That doesn't mean that we don't have opportunities to bring people up out of poverty and expand the middle class. But what it does mean is this certainty has really undermined our entrepreneurial spirit. And what you can see is a one-to-one expansion as as the middle class expands starting in the 1940s in the post-World War II baby boom era till now a a direct well excuse me an indirect proportion relationship with entrepreneurship as the middle class rises and quality of life becomes better entrepreneurship declines
1: and then um so I'm seeing a lot of people in franchising that are those second act entrepreneurs that after maybe they have that nest egg, then they're willing to take the risk. Um, After they see like kind of no way to replicate that salary when they get laid off or they retire, that it kind of forces their hand almost to be an entrepreneur and buy something. And even that case, I, I mean, you can make a case that they're picking a safer route in terms of picking a franchise rather than kind of building their own thing.
0: A hundred percent. I mean, it, I, I'm a huge franchise advocate for that reason. And more businesses were started in 2020 than have been started in, in any year for the past 15 years. So yeah, the pandemic really released that and, and sort of unchained all of those o- aspiring entrepreneurs who had not uh, reached the point of comfort level uh, to make that decision on their own. And the pandemic made that decision for them.
1: So um what's your kind of prognosis looking into your crystal ball in the future? What, what's going (laughs) to happen?
0: I'm a, I'm a recovering optimist. And uh, that means you're
1: over 55. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) well, what, what it means is I'm a, i am I would never bet, bet against America or American entrepreneurs. I think every time entrepreneurs have been called on, They've risen to the challenge, whether it was converting uh, suit factories into ammunition manufacturers during the, the World War II or converting uh, automobile assembly lines into ventilator assembly during the pandemic. I think you can. We should never bet against the American entrepreneur. And really, my mission is to bring awareness of this decline, because on the current trajectory, by the mid-2040s, of Americans are going to work for the other 1%. And I do not want to allow that to happen.
1: Now I'm seeing, um, and I've done work with some universities that they're trying to build as part of their curriculum an entrepreneur, um, kind of element, whether it's a, um, entrepreneurship classes available to anybody in any major or majors or minors in entrepreneurship, uh, Do you think that that's something that's going to help stem the tide and at least open up young people's mind to this as an option rather than I have to work for somebody else?
0: I hope so, Lee, but here's the sad truth. There are about 5,000 colleges in America, and among them, less than 300 of them have entrepreneurship or small business as a major about four or 5% of the universities. So the message that they're sending is resoundingly clear. And that is, we are training you to be an employee. And there is an expectation of assimilation. So I'm proud that there are colleges and universities out there who are, who are supporting these entrepreneurship programs of recognizing the importance of it, if for no other reason, because capitalism works best when there is competition. And in order to have that competition, we need a flourishing small business environment that can hold corporate monoliths accountable uh, through innovation and and through, you know, their agility that the, the larger companies don't have. So without those small businesses, yeah, capitalism doesn't function as well as it normally would.
1: So now do you think that there has to be some sort of intervention when it comes to these corporations, these mega corporations just kind of sucking all the oxygen out of the room and, and uh, that they're almost – I don't, I really don't want companies that are too big to fail, but some of these companies are trying to play both sides of an equation. You know, they're building a platform, then they're selling stuff on the platform, and then they're, you know, learning from their, the people using the platform to create their own things within the platform. Like, it becomes very incestuous, and I think it becomes, it opens up uh, the possibility of corruption and not a true market.
0: Yeah, to answer your question directly is I think that intervention and regulation is what caused this disparity. I think that government intervention has always been lopsided towards bigger businesses and still is lopsided toward bigger businesses. If I'll give you a shining example of this. Throughout the pandemic, your locally owned ACE hardware could not be open, but Home Depot never closed, Right your local farmers market office could not be open but every large grocery store chain and walmart was was open so that message is resoundingly clear and, and and i don't want to intervene more than we've already intervened what i want is the government to get out of the way and allow the free market to work the way it's supposed to
1: right but don't you think that right but uh, those government choices typically stem from the larger uh, corporations that are lobbying to create that kind of, um, of course, squashing of the small that's folks.
0: What I'm saying is, I don't, I don't want more intervention on on their side. Uh, if, if we're going to intervene, we need to intervene as a consolidated effort of the people to support small business and the importance of, of propping up entrepreneurship.
1: So, so what's the answer then? Like, what are you gonna? What's going to be the uh, impetus to get any change, especially ar- amongst these mega corporations?
0: So I'd like to think that you're seeing this happen and the pandemic released this already. I don't know if you saw in the news, but in August, 4.3 million people quit their job. That's the highest number in a single month in American history. And they weren't fired. They weren't downsized. What happened was the pandemic exposed that there was a quality of life that maybe existed differently than the corporate world that they lived within. And when they went back to work, they hated it. And 4.3 million people quit their jobs in August. So uh, you're asking me what the answer is. I think the answer has been revealed to us. And when you have that many millions of people leaving on their own, either to seek better employment or start their own gig, uh, you know, this is a revolution that, um, that I want to be part of.
1: But when they're leaving, are they just going to a different, you know, kind of entity? Like you said, a handful of corporations are running the show. So are they leaving one just to go to another, you know?
0: I don't I don't think that folks are quitting large corporate monoliths to go to another large corporate monolith. I I think that COVID has really revealed the importance of us working together on a hyper localized basis. And a lot of the businesses that you see flourishing right now are flourishing within their hyper local community, uh, precisely because the pandemic revealed the importance of us working together as a community, but also because corporate monoliths are struggling with logistics right now. It's all over the news. And they can't get products and services to these smaller, mid-tiered, and small markets. So what an incredible opportunity that is for entrepreneurs to take market share away from these massive organizations right now when when they were pandered to early in the, the pandemic, but are now crippled by logistical challenges.
1: So then this requires the individual to step up and seize the day.
0: I, 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 I couldn't say it better. That was a perfect way to say it, Lee. Absolutely. There's never a perfect time, but I have to say that so many of the market indicators are in place right now from real estate availability to consumer de- demand and shifts and in evolutions in, in, in how services and products are being provided to, to actually have white space for the first time in America in some time, to, to have a new landscape of business environment to be able to step into without having to step into one that is mature and well-formulated where you have a lot of steep competition, you can literally be the tip of the spear right now.
1: So what would be some practical, tactical action someone could take right now?
0: Um, I will tell you two different ways. So my, my standard answer to this is belief is reverse engineered. For those who don't necessarily believe they can be successful, you never will believe you until you start taking action And then you start seeing yourself as the kind of person who could be successful in that area. And my other answer to this is to latch hold of the incredible amount of service industry opportunities that are being provided. Uh, The real estate market is a prime example of this. I live in Florida, a thousand people a day are moving to Florida. That's a real number. And those people are either buying homes or renting homes. So there's this enormous opportunity for appraisers and remodelers and, and skilled labor force and HVAC companies and, and all of these amazing service industry related or real estate related services that uh, I, I know a guy who's a, a home inspector and he's booked for the next eight weeks. You can't get a home inspection right now in the state of Florida. It's it's really difficult. So uh, for those franchises that do home inspection, I'm sure they are, are trying to find new franchisees and what an incredible opportunity to join an industry that's in such incredible demand right.
1: So now in your practice, do you spend most of your time speaking? Um, Are you consulting?
0: I I do most of my time speaking, and I also consult with chambers of commerce and municipal entities. I recognize that I'm never going to be able to rescue one million entrepreneurs from traditional employment the way I would like to by doing it one entrepreneur at a time. I know that we're going to have to affect change at a policy level. So I consult with a lot of chambers of commerce and municipal economic development councils on how to set up the infrastructure and the, um, the attractiveness to allure those entrepreneurs into those markets or to be able to have those that already are in their markets finally take that leap.
1: And if somebody wants to get a hold of you or get a hold of your book, what's the website?
0: I'm really easy. You can go to trawilliams.com. I'm trawilliams.com. The book is called Boss Brain. It's on Amazon. You can. I was proud to see I made number nine on the new releases in the startups category this last week on Amazon, and uh, really was humbled by the support and the outpouring of support for this. I think a lot of people recognize the importance of entrepreneurship as as an as an American really fundamental, and the importance of of keeping capitalism working at its finest by always having great competition. So, um, anyone who'd like to. Pick up the book and contact me to have those discussions. I'm always happy to talk to entrepreneurs.
1: Good stuff. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today. You're doing important work and we appreciate you.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: All right. This is Lee Cantor. We'll see you all next time on Franchise Marketing Radio.